In his paper, A Mathematician's Lament, Paul Lockhart um, tells a story of a, mu- a musician that wakes up in the morning in a, in a cold sweat, just with fear and anxiety and all of those things that you feel when, when life just gets out of, out of whack, when it just gets crazy. In his dream, the musician uh, is imagining that uh, the powers that be in the world decide that in a, in a world that is consumed with sound, that nothing could be more important than we educate our children in music. Which you may think immediately that that sounds like a great idea. But those people begin to devise a way of starting at the earliest levels of education to, to teach our youngsters uh, what, it, what music is. And they begin with the building blocks with notes on lines and staffs. And by the third grade they can from memory uh, reproduce the circle of fifths. And, and it, it takes this thing, this music, and instead of it being this beautiful art form, it's just these little bits and pieces. And if you're a musician in this room, you're probably cringing a little bit because we know the power of music, right? And it's not, it's not the little pieces, it's the sum of those things that make it incredible. And as you probably are putting together, the mathematician's lament is that that's exactly what has happened to what he would call the art of math, that we've taken something that um, is messy, something that's creative, something that is wonderful, and we've broken it down into these small pieces. And as the saying goes, a lot of times we can't see the forest for the trees, right? We get so focused on the little building blocks that we can't see the total picture of what something is. As you can imagine, the students in this story quickly become bored with music, And all of this developmental time that was supposed to prepare them to enjoy a world of music has done the exact opposite. In fact, it's become something that they dread, something that is meticulous that they must do. Lockhart makes the argument that that that's what we've done with math. And and he's he's saying that we've taken something that should inspire wonder, something that should inspire creativity, and we've reduced it to simply to rules and repetition and something that must be done. You see, art is, is messy. If you've ever finger-painted with a child, with a toddler, you understand that art is messy. If you've ever thrown pottery on a wheel, you understand that art can be messy. If you've ever tried to learn a new song or, or picked up an instrument for the first time, you understand that, that in the beginning, that things are not perfect. They don't always sound good. They don't always look well. But it's in that environment. It's in this environment of of being able to fail, to practice, to experiment, and to see what things look good together or how they may sound together. It's in that process that wonderful things begin to take place. It's in that process of, or in that environment, with the opportunity to fail, with the opportunity to discover, with the opportunity to create, that that beautiful things have begun to emerge, right? We see that happen as you, if you've ever taken an art class, or you've taken a music class. When you first began, when I first began to play guitar, it was horrid. My fingers didn't go in the right places, the strings weren't pressed down the right way, and it did not sound like a guitar when I played it. I took pottery in college. In my first few weeks, I couldn't even get the clay centered on the wheel. So that didn't work out real well. But as you practice, as you, as you pour yourself into something, all of a sudden beauty begins to take shape. I bring this up today because we're going to see in our passage that we have done the same thing with life itself. 
We take something that God created to be wonderful, something that God created to be beautiful, and we often break it down into its parts, and we try to reconcile just the parts without taking a step back to see the beauty of what God's doing. It looks like this. We learn this logic um, in math class as we're growing up, right? We assume that if we do good things, we will receive just rewards for those good things. Or we assume that if we make bad decisions, that we will reap the benefits of those bad decisions, right? It's like one plus one equals two. That's the way our brains are trained to think. We apply this simple math, we apply this set of rules to our lives, and we fully expect that we are going to receive the outcome or the reward of the behavior that we've exhibited. But what we know is that often that is not the case. We've looked at that already in Ecclesiastes, but this is our logic, right? We think, this, isn't this how life works? Life is, is like art. It's messy. Things don't always turn out the right way on your first try. Look at me today. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes. We're going to look today at verses 15. Um, it's either 21 or 22. I've, I've lost the number. But we want to read just verse 15 this morning. Read this with me. He says, in my feudal, this is the preacher. He says, in my feudal life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. This is not a new topic for us. We've, we've been down this road already with the author of Ecclesiastes. But he's making this point again, and what he's attempting to do is to help us to rewire the way we think. Because we still, even though we've learned this lesson, even though in life we have had times where we've done all the right things and whatever it was we were striving for did not work out, our brains still default to, if I act the right way, if I do the right things, life will go well. We accept this childish view of life because we want it to be, we want it to be easy, Right? First point I want to make today is that life doesn't work out the way we expect. Most of us have already experienced that our, our math logic doesn't work. Sometimes the formula does work. Sometimes you do all the right things and things work out. But just as often, we work really hard and expect to be rewarded for, the, for that hard work and it never comes. You see, we, we like a balanced equation. Balanced equations are natural. That's the way the world was intended to be, right? However, when we, when we try to go to that, we're not making things better. We're making life harder to understand and reconcile in our minds because we're not taking into account all the variables and one very important variable, which is sin. You see, we don't factor that into our equation. When we're thinking, I'm going to do all the right things and I'm going to get the outcome that I want, we don't factor in our own sin, right? That doesn't, that doesn't enter our thinking. See, here's the thing is that this struggle is not unique to us, right? We are not the first people to, to try to, to live in accordance with the Scripture and then to realize that life doesn't always work out the way we expect it to. Look at, with me at the, at the prophet Habakkuk. This is in chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 2 and we'll read through 4 and then we'll jump down to 13. Habakkuk says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen, or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? 
Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. And in the verse 13 he says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is sick uh, or one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? Can't you feel that down in your soul? Can't you look back on your own life and seen times where you were in the middle of something that was unjust and you cry out to God and say, God, why is my life like this? Why are you allowing this to happen? If we're going to make sense of this life, if we're going to learn what it means to be God's love in a broken world, we have to understand several things. We need to recognize and accept two important things. Number one, it, that because of sin, we live in a corrupt and distorted world. That's the, the broken world that we talk about. And this is a fact. It's not an opinion. You may try to convince yourself or others may try to convince you that it's not. But the fact remains that Adam and Eve chose disobedience. And through that action, sin entered the world that we live in. And anytime there's, there is sin, there is a perversion of truth and justice. We may not like it, but that's the thing about facts. It doesn't matter how we feel about them. They're still true. The second thing we need to understand is that until we come to grips with a broken world being our reality, we'll be baffled by the outcomes in our lives. Because again, we're going back to that simple of equation of, well, I did the right things. I should get what I, what I, what I ought to, to, to receive. Excuse me, I got my words mixed up. The quality of life that we want is balanced. But what we experience is often very unbalanced. We enjoy... Um, we can enjoy when we see the life for what it is, and that's that it's, it's heaven. Once we realize, once our perspective changes and we understand the temporary nature of the world that we live in, then we're able to experience joy. And to be clear, I want us to understand that we will all most certainly face injustice and suffering. But if we know that it's coming, we can allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to deal with it. If we live with our heads in the sand and choose to believe otherwise, then we're always going to feel blindsided when injustice shows up. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 with me. Peter says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the suffering of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous man is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those of us who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So Peter is describing what we experience. 
That we, even though we are followers of Christ, that we are pursuing Him, that we are abiding in Him, we still are going to experience suffering in our lives. And we can accept the broken nature of life on earth. If we can do that, we can understand our place in it. If we understand from the beginning that we're going to suffer, but instead of wallowing in self-pity, if we choose to rejoice in the victory that Christ provides for us and trust in God's faithfulness, we're going to have a different experience in our life. We can rejoice because the justice and the victory that we long for have already been made available to us. They may not look the way we expect them to look, but they're there. When we're living life in an abiding relationship, we're going to experience life from God's perspective. And if we're looking at life from God's perspective, we're going to experience the joy that comes from Him. Point number two I want to make today is that the end goal isn't righteousness, but a relationship with God. Let's look at verses 16 through 20 in Ecclesiastes 7. He says, don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. When we first look at that passage, we see what seems obvious. Okay, After all, in the beginning of this study, the preacher makes the point that striving after wisdom leads to much vexation. Do you remember that? That to strive and spend our whole lives like he did in search of wisdom is going to just simply wear us out. He also says that he sought folly and it too was heavily, that it did not satisfy. So what do we do with this passage? What is, what is the preacher trying to say? You may look at this and, and some interpret this as a call for moderation. But it's a call to reliance on God instead of ourselves. Verse 17 is easy for us to wrap our heads around. It says, don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? In fact, this idea was popularized in the late 90s by a guy you may have heard of. His name is Jess Foxworthy, right? Y'all have heard of him? And, and in, his, in his comedy bit, he would say something to the effect of, y'all watch this, right? That's how every redneck dies, right? Hold my beer. It never, it never turns out well. And that's what he's saying in verse 17 is, don't be excessively wicked. Don't be foolish. Why should you die before time? I told you guys last week, Bethany tells me all the time, I'm going to die because I did something stupid. She's probably right. She usually is. Don't do that. Most people have a pretty good handle on the results of wicked or foolish behavior, right? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. We've heard that a lot. At least I have. However, verse 16 isn't as easy, and we struggle with what the preacher could be saying. The reason that we struggle with that is because our Christian culture has been preaching for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that our good behavior will gain us favor in God's eyes. At TGP, though, we've spent a lot of time digging into God's grace, and we, of course, know that this is not truth, that how we behave is not going to gain us anything. Yet, that's often still our default. We default to acting and thinking that our ability to be righteous has a direct correlation with the quality of our lives. Do we not? I'm not saying that righteous is not bad and not something that should be strived for. 
But we default so often to math class. Again, we, one plus one equals two. If I do the right things and say the right things, then I'm going to get what I want. But that's not how God has, or that's not how the world works. We, we get caught in the lie that our good behavior will lead, lead to an easy God-blessed life. I'm saying that, that you're probably, as I'm saying it, you're probably running the equation in your head, right? You're, you're either still under the power of the lie and trying to reconcile your math with what I'm saying or what this passage is saying, or you've lived long enough to be able to, to uh, completely confirm that the truth that our lives are not that simple. We talked about that the last couple of weeks, that things are not always cut and dry. And that math, that one plus one equals two, assumes that things are cut and dry. We see often, we've seen it on the news a lot recently, that people are regularly arrested for doing nothing wrong. And then often people who, um, who, who um, commit horrible crimes receive no consequences for their actions. That's the heaviness of our world. And verse 15 speaks directly to that. He says, in my futile life, I've seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of righteousness, and some wicked live as long in spite of his evil. So how are, we, how are we to live in a world like this? The preacher doesn't offer any solution to the problems like he often does. He, he just points out, here is the reality that we live in. His purpose is not to create a solution. What he's trying to do is to correct our math. He's trying to, to help us get rid of it completely. The equation doesn't work. It never has and it never will because it's too simple. It can't and it doesn't take in all the variables that exist in the world. He's trying to help us come to grips with the reality that, that we have experienced, that, that life is weird sometimes. Sometimes things come out of nowhere and they're good or sometimes they come out of nowhere and they're not good. And the issue is, is that we're attempting to rely on our own knowledge and experiences to invent a way of dealing with this world, right? We see a problem in our minds immediately are trying to reconcile what's going on in our lives based on the knowledge and the experiences that we have. And when we try to rely on our own knowledge, we rely on our own experiences, we are taking upon ourselves the burden of righteousness, which is far too heavy for us. We're not capable of understanding a lot of those things. Rather than us trying to do for ourselves what Christ has already done for us, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work His righteousness into our lives through His Holy Spirit. Look what happens when we try to make um, the work of our self-righteousness. Watch what happens when we take that on. Look with me at Matthew 23, verses 1 through 7. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to His disciples. The scribes and Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge, I'm going to mispronounce that, phylacteries, there you go, and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. In this passage, Jesus is pointing out that the goal of the Pharisees is not to be in right relationship with God, but rather to be seen by people. 
to be lifted up. Look how great these guys are. They're wanting to, to enlarge the following that they have. They believe that their personal righteousness equaled favor in God's eyes. That if, they, that if they made themselves appear more righteous than others, then obviously they must be. It was their responsibility to teach Israel how to have a right, right relationship with God. But instead of doing that, they took the law, which God intended to show their need for God, and they perverted it into a set of rules and regulations, a list of things, as the scripture says, a heavy burden to be carried by the people. They took the beauty of what God created, they took the beauty of God's law and they reduced it to a set of rules, to a set of, of ideas that we need to follow. And they're proud of their accomplishments and they wanted others to be proud of them as well. What we see in the story is that seeking righteousness through our own strength leads us into the trap of pride every time. Anytime we make our lives about what we can gain, whether it be wealth or popularity, we're falling into a trap of pride. And in those moments, we're taking the focus off of, of, of God and putting the spotlight on ourselves and saying, look how great I am. I've done all these good things. We're being just like the Pharisees. We're wearing our goodness for all the world to see. And that's not the goal of God. The goal of God is not for people to look at us and go, wow, look how great a guy Will is. The goal of God is for people to look at me and go, look how great God is. We need to allow Christ to be our righteousness. And we find that happy place that, that we're talking about, that the author of Ecclesiastes, when he says, don't be too righteous, but also don't be too wicked. We find that happy place. The way we get there is not by us calculating and saying, okay, well, I did this one good thing and I did this one bad thing. They're going to balance out, right? That's not how we get there. The way that we get there is through abiding in Christ. We let Him be our righteousness. And when we do that, we're not focused on wickedness and we're not focused on righteousness. We're focused on Christ who is perfect and then we find ourselves in the perfect place. It's our personal relationship with God that brings us into perfect righteousness. And so my last point for today is that our own sinfulness should remind us to be gracious with one another. Even though we have the righteousness of Christ, we're still human. We still live in the flesh. We still face and succumb temptation often. And as humans and as sinners, we need to understand that people are just like we are. And we need to offer grace to those people. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me in Ecclesiastes 7. He says, Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. Listen, wisdom is most definitely an advantage to us. It's a good thing. That's why we spent so much time talking about it. And in this passage in verse 19, he's saying that the wisdom of one man makes him far stronger than ten wonderful great rulers of ten different cities. One wise person. Because their wisdom is coming from God, not from their own knowledge, not from their own experiences. It's important for us to remember, though, that we're not perfect. It's easy for us when, when the righteousness of Christ comes into our lives for us to get a little puffed up about it and think, though, I must have been a cause of some of this. But it's not us, it's Him. It doesn't matter how wise we are, while we are still in these fleshly bodies, sin is still in our lives. Temptation is still all over us. I was thinking about this idea this week, and, and, and <clears throat> excuse me, I want to point us, I want you to remember what it was like to be a teenager. 
I'm, I'm almost, or I'm getting, well, now I've reached it. I have a teenager to, to that point in my life. And there are some of you in the room who've already had teenagers and you will nod your heads and laugh. But also, if you've recently been a teenager, you will also nod your head and laugh. I want you to think about this. I want you to remember either when you were a teenager or when you had a teenager. I want you to think about how um, in their preteen years especially, the sins of the parents become glaringly obvious to you. Do you remember that as a teenager? Or parents, do you remember receiving that from your children? Right? Especially, this is amplified if, if that teen gives their life to Christ during that period. Well, your, your sin as a parent is just out there like a lighthouse on a clear night. It's obvious. But what we learn as we grow older is that, that we have just as much sin in our own lives, right? So when I was a teenager, it was easy to look at my mom and dad and see all the sin in their life. But to see the sin in my life, was there wasn't much sin there, right? That's what I thought. But as I grew, as I became more mature, I began to see that there's just as much sin in me. We began to see that the world is not as cut and dry as we naively thought it was when we were teenagers, right? When we mature. All of a sudden we realize that Maybe our parents weren't so wrong after all. Maybe there was more to it than we realized. This is the, uh, the same idea that the preacher is trying to communicate to us. Because we all sin, we personally understand the enormous need that we have for God's grace. We need it in our lives. And we need to allow that knowledge to inform the way we treat one another. It's easy to be upset when someone does something wrong to us, but do we ever consider the way that... that we have treated others that day. When someone comes at me with a lot of attitude, do I consider in my response the way I've treated others? Do I consider what maybe went on in their day prior to that interaction with me? Typically, no. When, we're, when we have our feelings hurt and our tempers flare, do we take the time to consider our own faults? Do we allow that to inform our response? Because we all are sinners. Look at Romans 3, 9 through 20. This is a you know, pretty well-known passage, but let's read it together. It says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who stands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they, do not, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So scripture is real clear. All of us have sin in our lives. A lot of it. And all of us equally are in need of the grace of Christ. That's why he came. He came to right the relationship that sin that we chose through Adam and Eve. What an incredible way to be God's love in a broken world than by offering the abundant grace that we receive from Christ. That when someone attacks us personally, that instead of retaliating in like, that we heap grace upon them. 
just like Christ has done for us. Our friends and family need exactly the same amount of grace that we do. They need all of it. You need all of it. And one of the ways that we're going to be God's love in a broken world is not just saying, hey, you're wrong, but more importantly say, it doesn't matter, I love you anyway. To, to, to say to someone, it's not important that I'm right. What's more important is that we love one another. Our lives are full of both righteous and wicked, and because of sin, we all need grace. And this leads us into our last two verses for the day. In verses 21 through 22, the author says, Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Look, we need grace, all of us. Every one of us are in need of grace. And at any, t- any time that we come under fire in other people's lives, we need to do two things. We need to ask God if there's any truth in what is being said. And if there's truth, we need to repent and follow God's guidance in dealing with that sin. But if it's not true, we need to ask God how to handle the issue. Don't just assume because you're attacked and it's wrongful that you need to retaliate, that it's your right to retaliate. Because that's not always the case. Sometimes when we're attacked, God says, return with love. Number two is we need to extend grace. In 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9, he says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, give a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit the blessing. That's our call. That's our call as believers, is to return with love. Just like the other two points that we've discussed this morning, if we make what happens in our lives all about us, we're missing the point. We assume that when we receive suffering in the place of blessing, blessing, it's because we've done something wrong. Or we assume that in order to be righteous, we need to live in a certain way or work really hard. But that's not true either. When someone speaks ill of us, we need to remember that it may not be about us. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The world does not revolve around will. And so it's incredibly selfish of me to assume that everything is about me. It's very likely that that person that is speaking ill of you is dealing with other issues in their life. And you were simply a convenient or uh, opportunistic target for the strife in their life. You just happened to be in the right place at the right time and they unloaded on you. There's going to be times where we are purposely attacked, but even in those times, we still are asked to extend grace. That is our call as believers. There's an old hymn that that I'm reminded of. Um, You probably are familiar with it. The title of it is that they'll know that we are Christians by our love. That wraps all of this up for us. We live in a broken, sinful world. If it were not for the love of an amazing God, we would be miserable because we would be left here on our own dealing with sin. But that's not what God did for us. God came to us. He provided the sacrifice that we needed to right the relationship. Our call is to be His love in the broken world. And it relies completely on our dependence on Him, not on our righteousness. If through this sermon series, if you've been making a checklist of how you can be a better person so that you can help other people, you're missing the point. The point is not our righteousness. It's not something that we have to offer. 
The point is, is that Christ is righteous. And it's His life that people need. It's His opinion that people need, not our own. There are going to be many times in our life where people are mean just because they can be. And when that happens, we need to bring it to the Lord and let Him deal with the problem, but also deal with you. Don't let bitterness take root in your heart. That's not who we are called to be. We're not supposed to have bitterness and hate and and envy and jealousy and all of those sins. That's not supposed to be in our lives. Love is what's supposed to be in there. Bitterness and resentment do not speak of love. And as the saying goes, this is where the rubber meets the road. We can talk about being God's love in a broken world, but unless we're, we're willing to sacrifice ourselves, to lay down our lives for one another, until we're willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our lives, we cannot be that. We cannot be God's love. Being God's love requires for us to love the way that Jesus did. When He was being whipped, when He's being spat on, when He's being marched to the cross, at no point did He say, okay, that's enough. I've had enough. I deserve better than this. Did He? He took it. And He died on our behalf. He endured it for the sake of the very people that were doing it to Him. You see, when, when people are mean to us, often we look at them and we say, well, I'm a better person than they are. I don't deserve this. It's not the way Jesus looked at them. He loved them through the hurt so that those very people could be made right with God. We need to allow God to remind us of our own sin and our own need for grace and let the, the person of Christ that is abiding in us be our motivation to righteousness, to be our righteousness, to, to guide us into how to love people well. This life is not about us. And if you, if you haven't heard me say that so far in this study, let me say it again. This life is not about us. It's not about what will can gain for will. It's about what is Christ asking me to do? He gave me this life. He put me on this earth. He, Psalm says it formed me in my innermost being in my mother's womb. He gave me this life, and then He gave me the love. He gave me the grace that I needed in order to have a right relationship with Him. And my response always has to be, God, what do you want from me? Show me, and I'll do it. It's a response of love. We were created not to just enjoy life on this earth, but to enjoy God. And when we're in a right relationship with God, then we will enjoy life, but it can never be the other way around. Because when our focus, when our goal is to enjoy life, we're putting God in second place. But when we put God in first place, the result of that, the long-term result, is enjoyment of the life that we have here on earth. Let's pray together and ask God to help us keep that perspective this week. Father, it's difficult to, to be in this world. It's difficult often to, to make sense of senseless things. God, it's my, my hope and our prayer for, for my people, for myself, that our goal would not be to make sense of the world, but our goal would be to know you and let you make sense of the world. And, and to be okay if we don't ever get that closure. Be able to say, God, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You are what matters. Father, it's going to require work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's going to require a new perspective on life, a perspective that only you can give. 
It's not something that we can conjure up. It's not something that we can, can produce in and of ourselves. It's going to be a work from you, a work from the Holy Spirit. So Father, we ask that you would do that work in us no matter what the cost. Show us yourself, show us your love, and use that as our motivation to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.